Uh, I'll just add my greetings to everyone here, and especially if you're visiting with us today. Uh, so glad to have so many of you with us this morning. And uh, My name is Mike Weigland. I have the, the gift of being the pastor here and excited to be with you and worshiping with you this morning. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 17 this morning, and it's the story of David and Goliath. And I was just I'm curious, uh, how many of you have heard this story before? At some point, just raise your hand. We're getting good audience interaction this morning. Okay, yes, I I had a feeling that was the case. We're going to talk about a little bit about how popular this story is in just a minute, but um, it's a well-known passage, and we're going to not read all of 1 Samuel 17 since it's so long, uh, but we're going to just read some different selections from it. But you can follow along uh, with the slides as they come up or um, on your phones or in a Bible, however you'd like to do that. And uh, let's pray before we read this Lord's Word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that as we come before your word this morning, Lord, knowing that you present yourself to us in your word and that you, that you confront us in your word, you speak to us and encourage us, you convict us and you build us up. And I pray, Lord, that whatever is going on in our hearts right now, whatever we have brought with us today, that you would quiet our hearts, that you would calm our minds so that we could hear what you have to say to us. As Melissa prayed, we thank you, Lord, that you speak to us. And so would you speak to us once again today and make us ready to receive whatever it is you want to say. And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So we'll uh, start at verse 1 of chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war. And they assembled at Soko in Judah. And they pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah. And they drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. And the Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. And a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp And his height was six cubits and a span. And he had a bronze helmet on his head. And he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels. And on his legs he wore bronze greaves. And a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. And his shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. And then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And for 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. And David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul replied, you are not able to go against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. And he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it 
and struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. And then Saul dressed David in his own tunic and he put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. And David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. And then he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the stream. And he put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag. And with his sling on his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. And he looked David over. And he saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome. And he despised him. And he said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and to the wild animals. But David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. And this very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And as the Philistines moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him, and reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it. And struck the Philistine on the forehead, and the stone stank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a long passage, I know, but uh, it's such a great passage. As I was reading over it this week, I was reminded of just what a great story this is, and I wish we had had time to read the whole thing. And if you have time this week, I'd encourage you to go back and read all of uh, 1 Samuel 17 and just read through the whole thing. It's, it's told so well and so vividly. I, it's one of those stories I think you can just really put yourself in and imagine being there. And I think that's part of why it's so popular. Uh, this may be the most well-known story in the Old Testament. I don't know how to prove that, but I have to believe it's at least in the top 10 popular stories in all of scripture. It's one that, that every child who grows up going to church will hear several times over. Uh, there's a decent chance that if you have grown up going to church, maybe you were even part of some sort of a reenactment of this story at some point in your life. They find the biggest adult in the, in the church to be Goliath, and then the kids come out and they taunt him and cheer at him and things like that. I remember uh, when I was working for a church in Virginia Beach back in the United States, and I opened the door to a storage closet. It was dark in there, and, and I was startled because there was this life-sized uh, wooden cutout of Goliath standing right across from me, and he was made out of plywood, and uh, his neck was on a hinge, 
And so that it would just fall backwards so that, that when you have like church fairs and things, you know, the kids could line up and throw stones at him and then his, his head would just fall backwards like it had fallen off, which is not exactly how it happens in the story. Uh, but nonetheless, it was a fun idea. It really scared me. I mean, he was big when I, when I saw him. I, you know, was, you had that feeling in your heart all of a sudden that somebody was there waiting for you. So... This story is so well-known and so popular, and, and I think even the popularity of David and Goliath transcends the boundaries of the church. People know this story, whether they're Christian or not, whether they've grown up in the church or not. It's become a part of the cultural imagination in many places. And I find, at least in the United States, it's a particularly popular uh, story to use as a metaphor or an analogy uh, during sporting events or during political contests, when there is a clear front runner, somebody who is, is supposed to win whatever the contest is. And then you have the small, younger, weaker upstart that comes in, and maybe it's another David and Goliath story. We call these underdog stories in the United States. I don't know if everybody else knows that term, uh, but the underdog, right? The one, the smaller party, the weaker party might just come up and beat the champion, the one who is clearly bigger and stronger and more favored. And this is the ultimate underdog story that we have here. One of my favorite movies growing up is a movie called Hoosiers. I don't know if anybody's ever seen that movie before. I watched it once a week when I was in middle school. And, uh, and it's about this small town basketball team in the United States from the state of Indiana. Uh, they have seven people on their basketball team, and they, they make it all the way to the state championship game, which is like the, the greatest thing that can happen uh, to a small town high school basketball team. It's like winning the World Cup or playing in the World Cup, right, for, for a smaller country playing in football. And so they were playing against the big school from the capital city with all the best players. They had plenty of people on the team to go up against them. Uh, And there's this scene right before the big game where one of the student's fathers, who was also a pastor, who was also driving the team bus because God had told him to do it, uh, he pulls out the Bible right before the big game. And he's talking to the, uh, the players, and he reads a few lines from this passage, just these lines that say, and David took out a stone, and he slung it, and it struck the giant, and he fell down dead. And he was using this passage to encourage the team to say, look, you have a chance in this game. You, you can win, even though all the odds are stacked against you. I'm not going to tell you what happens at the end of the movie, but it's worth watching. But it's the ultimate underdog story. We love stories like that, where the smaller party, the weaker party comes and they defeat the champion. And that's what we have here in this story, that David, because of God being on his side, was able to defeat Goliath. So there's no question this is a great underdog story, but I just want to suggest that there is much more going on here as well. That this is more than just the ultimate underdog story that we have with David and Goliath. One of the challenges of returning to a story like David and Goliath, a passage like this, is the fact that we are so familiar with it. And so when you hear it, you think, you know, I know that story, and I've learned everything there is to learn from it. I I know what this story is about. I know what the point is. I know what you're going to say this morning, Mike, and maybe that's true. And we just leave it there. Or if we've been hearing it our whole lives as children, then often we think, well, this is a children's story, right? This is a story that that children learn as they grow up to learn how to put their faith in God. But I'm an adult, so I've moved on to more uh, mature things in my faith, deeper theological topics. And so there's nothing new to see here. 
But just like all of Scripture, there's value in returning time and time again to these stories with fresh eyes, with fresh ears, to see what else the Lord may have in it for us today. And the story of David and Goliath, this story that we're looking at this morning, has something to say to us about how we see the world and how we judge the world. And it challenges our priorities and commitments and the way that we make decisions. And if we let it, it will hold up a mirror to our own lives. And it will confront us with questions about where we put our faith. Where do we really put our faith in life? This is just the third time that David has shown up in the Bible. His first appearance, uh, we've talked about the last couple weeks, was when the prophet Samuel anointed him as king. This young shepherd boy, the youngest of, of eight brothers, and he's chosen to be king over all of Israel. He was chosen by God himself to be the leader of God's own people. And it didn't make sense to anyone that God had done this, that God had chosen him to be the king. He was too young, he was too unknown, he was too inexperienced. No one expected God to make this move. Samuel didn't expect it. Even the wise old prophet, he didn't expect God to choose David. David's father, Jesse, didn't expect it. He didn't even invite David to come and be a part of the procession with all of the other brothers. He wasn't expecting this. Certainly, David's older brothers were not expecting him to be chosen as king, and I can imagine what their responses may have been uh, when Samuel anointed them. And we're not told what his response is, but I have to wonder if even David wasn't a little surprised when Samuel anointed him as king. I wonder if there wasn't sort of a, a who me? I'm just a shepherd boy. What are, you, what are you talking about, Samuel? That I would be the next king of Israel. And the famous line of that story is the one that we keep repeating through this sermon series where God tells Samuel, don't judge him by his outward appearance because the Lord does not look at things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And this is the verse that gives us our theme for this whole sermon series we're looking at through the summer. It's a theme that will come up again and again in the books of First and Second Samuel. That the Lord does not look at the things that people look at. Because people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is a good verse for us to remember in life in general that we are often looking at something different from what God is looking at and judging the world in different ways than the God, way that God judges the world. And what this verse is talking about here is what it means to see through the eyes of faith and to approach life through the eyes of faith. Because the reality is that there's always more going on behind the scenes than we realize or that we can observe with our senses because God is at work in this world in ways that we can't see and in ways that we don't always understand. But make no mistake, God is always working to bring about his purposes and to establish his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And this is what David understands in today's passage that no one else does. David shows up on the scene a little bit late to the party. Goliath has been coming out for 40 days already, as we read in our verse, and he's been throwing insults and profanities at Israel's army. He's been taunting them. He's been doing a lot of what we call trash talking. He's been daring anyone to come and to fight him. But the stakes are really high because if you lose, not only do you lose your life, but you are sentencing your people to a life of service to the Philistines, your, your arch rivals, your arch enemies. And even Israel's greatest warriors took one look at Goliath and they declined the challenge. 
And so the armies are just sitting there day after day, facing each other without fighting, waiting for Goliath to come down and to make his taunts and to throw his insults. And it's into this face-off that David appears, bringing food for his brothers who are serving in the army. David's still young. He's too young to serve in the army himself, so he's still out uh, taking care of his father's sheep. He stayed behind with Jesse, but Jesse wants to know how his other sons are doing. And so he uh, sends David, the youngest son, with some food for them and to find out how it is they are doing. And, And I have to say, talk about a lesson in humility. Even after David has been anointed as king, his dad still sends him with his brother's lunch to take it to him and deliver it to him. Uh, And so there's David, the youngest sibling, and he hears Goliath come out and send his taunts, and he asks, what's going on? What's happening here? And he's wondering why no one will go and face him in the name of the Lord, in the name of the living God. And so Saul hears that David is asking these questions, and he sends for him. And David says to Saul, let no one be afraid because of this man. I will go, and I will fight him. This is the first time that we hear David speak or do anything other than tend sheep or to play music for Saul. But through these exchanges that he has in this passage, we start to see David's character show up. And we start to get our first glimpses of why he is described in Scripture as being a man after God's own heart because of the way he responds here. In many ways, this story is a portrait of contrast. David the shepherd boy versus the great warriors. We see David versus his oldest brother, Eliab. He's the one that Samuel thought would be king just by taking one look at him. He's out there with the armies, but he's not willing to go up against Goliath. We have David versus Saul, who is the current king. He's the one that has been described as being a head taller than anyone else, handsomer than anyone else in in Israel. He's proved himself as a great warrior in battle himself, and yet he's not willing to go up against Goliath. And then we have David versus Goliath, the giant, the, the enemy warrior who struck fear into the hearts of all of his opponents. And in all of these cases, we see that these other people were looking at the situation strictly pragmatically, very practically. It was obvious that Goliath was the biggest, he was the strongest, he was the meanest. There was no question that 99 times out of 100, he was going to win in a man-to-man battle. And nobody wanted to take those odds. Nobody except David. So why was that? What was, what was the difference with David? I think there's a way that we could look at David, at least maybe if, if this was happening, happening in a contemporary setting with people that we knew, we would look at David and think that David was out of touch with reality, that David had sort of this youthful brashness, the way that young people often think of themselves as being invincible, uh, as maybe they have, uh, no offense, young people, sometimes we think this way, right? I can take this on, I can do this, I can win against this guy, of course, no problem, I can do this. Sort of uh, this, this arrogance that maybe wasn't due to him. Maybe it's immaturity or inexperience. He just doesn't understand the way that the world works. But the real difference that we see here, because the narrative tells us, is that David actually was the one who saw through the eyes of faith. It's not that David wasn't in touch with reality. It's not that he wasn't at all pragmatic. It's that David's pragmatism was based on his belief in a reality that goes deeper than what can be quickly seen and observed on the surface of life. 
Eugene Peterson says that David was actually the only one there who was in touch with reality that day because he was the only one that included God in his assessment of what was going on in that situation. Peterson goes on to describe David as having what he calls a God-soaked imagination. And I love that phrase, a God-soaked imagination. David's imagination, his, his way of thinking, his way of seeing the world had been so formed by his experiences of God's goodness in his life and by God's deliverance of him in the past that he walked up and he saw Goliath and he trusted that God would deliver him again. And I think this is a really important distinction to make here. David didn't know what was going to happen. He couldn't predict the future any more than anybody else. But David trusted in God. This is the nature of faith. It's not so much about knowing about what's going to happen or how things are going to turn out as about who you trust in life. David trusted God, trusted God and put his life in God's hands. David's victory over Goliath wasn't about his own self-confidence, his own determination to win. It wasn't about the little guy believing in himself and his own abilities. It wasn't about him having the best strategy or being good with a sling. If you read the words that we see here, David wasn't worried about himself at all. He doesn't come into this equation in any way. David's victory was about the faithfulness of the living God to deliver his people as he had done in the past and as he would do again, as he continues to do even now. David knew God to be a great deliverer, and he put his trust in God's faithfulness to his people. And if we look at the words in the passage that we read earlier, we see that this is true. In verse 37, we see that David says this, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And then in verses 45 through 47, it's this great inspirational speech, this defiant speech that he gives uh, to Goliath. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. It says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And this very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Next verse. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. I get goosebumps a little bit when I read that speech. It's just so powerful and inspirational to hear this kind of faith told. This is the faith that David had. Eliab, his older brother, didn't have this faith. Goliath certainly didn't see God this way. And perhaps most tellingly, King Saul didn't have this kind of faith. And again, Saul's failures as a king are put on a display for us in this passage, and they're highlighted even more in contrast to David. Even by the outward appearances, he was Israel's great warrior. The whole reason that Israel wanted a king was because they wanted somebody who was going to go out in front of them in battle, someone tall and big and strong and mighty who would lead them, who would be brave for them, who they could get behind and put their courage and faith in. Of anyone there that day, Saul should have been the one to go and face Goliath. 
But more than that, of anyone there, Saul is the one who should have put his faith and his trust in God's deliverance because he was the first hand-picked king of Israel, chosen by God himself. And he had experienced firsthand how God had delivered his enemies into his hands. But here Saul is described as being just as dismayed and just as terrified of Goliath as everyone else. And you would think that maybe David's willingness to go and fight Goliath, this young shepherd boy who shows up with no armor on, with just a handful of food and a sling, would have inspired Saul to say, you know what, this is my job, I'll go and do it. Or maybe it would have shamed Saul into doing so, saying, you know what, this is my job, I'm not going to be shown up by this young shepherd boy. And yet Saul says, go. He gives David his sword, he gives him his armor, he says, go and the Lord be with you. And he's very willing to let David go out and give up his own life for the sake of the people of Israel. And I think what we see in Saul here is a life that gives us a picture into leadership disconnected from faith in God. Saul was not putting his faith where he should have. But David did. David did have faith. This is how David saw the world. And this is what dominated his imagination. This is what allowed him to say boldly as he walked into battle, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Friends, what does it look like for us to have God-soaked imaginations? What would it look like for you to go through life with a God-soaked imagination, where God is the ultimate reality in your life and in this world? What does it mean to live through the eyes of faith? Asking this isn't meant to encourage impractical or unpragmatic decisions on the part of us as Christians. Rather, it's it's a call to, like David, acknowledge God's activity in the midst of and under the surface of our daily lives. It's It's a call, an encouragement, not just to look at the outward appearance of things and then assume that this is the ultimate reality, not counting God into the equation. I think having God-soaked imaginations means uh, what the Anglican missionary Leslie Newbegin calls having proper confidence. This is what David had. He wrote a whole book called Proper Confidence. And Newbegin says this, If the biblical story is true, the kind of certainty proper to humans will be one which rests on God's faithfulness, not on our own abilities and knowledge. And it will be a kind of certainty which is inseparable from gratitude and trust. Friends, if the biblical story is true, then this is how we should live our lives. And I'm here to say to you today that the story is true. The story is true. This is where David's confidence came from. His grateful trust in a loving and faithful God. A God who is committed to the deliverance of his own people. Let's return again to this idea of having God-soaked imaginations. In, in seminary, when I was in seminary, they called this having scriptural imaginations. That's how they talked about it. And it means becoming so familiar with the biblical story of God's grand narrative from Genesis to Revelation, God's grand narrative of salvation, and that it becomes the lens through which we see the world and through which we understand life. David's imagination was dominated by the idea of God as a deliverer of his people. And it was because he had been saved from wild animals, but also, I think, because he knew the story of Israel, the history of Israel, and of God's deliverance of his people in the past, especially the exodus 
and God's deliverance of Israel from captivity and slavery in Egypt. When you read through the Old Testament, and especially when you read through the Psalms, you see how often the Israelites are called to remembrance. Remember what the Lord has done for you. Remember the great deeds of God in the past. It's like it's a spiritual discipline for them to remember what God has done. And they're constantly being pointed to what God has done for them in their history as the foundation for their faith in the present. And they're especially pointed to that story of the Exodus. The Bible reading plan that I've been working my way through, it's a a one-year Bible reading plan. I'm taking a little bit longer than a year to go through it, Uh, but it's put out there by the Bible Project. And one of the passages that came up this week was Psalm 78. Uh, And it's a passage that emphasizes the importance of teaching the next generations, our children and our grandchildren, about the great deeds of the Lord, how he has instructed us, and impressing on them, as Steve, our, our preacher last week, talked about, impressing them on the uh, generations coming after us so that they will know and trust God as well. And it's a long psalm, 78's a long psalm, but it walks through the history of Israel, recounting God's faithfulness to his people. And it also talks about Israel's unfaithfulness along the way. But then it ends with David, pointing to David, and it says this, It says, God chose David his servant, and he took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, and with skillful hands, he led them. David looked at God's faithfulness in the past, in his own life and in Israel's, and because of that, he put his faith in God in the present. And as the king of Israel, he led his people, God's people, to do the same, to follow in the same way. Imperfect though he was, this is what David was doing. Friends, as Christians, I hope that we can all point to our own individual stories, our own individual lives, and point to stories of God's deliverance. That we can look and see the close calls in our lives of of health scares or of job losses, of financial hardships, of broken relationships, perhaps even of addictions and deep-seated sinful behaviors. That we can look at the hard times in our lives where God has brought us through and healed us and restored us and redeemed us. I hope that we can do that. But also as Christians, we proclaim that the central act of God's deliverance comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the story of a God who came down from heaven and humbled himself to live a human life and who then humbled himself even further to death on a cross in order to deliver us. And this same God was raised again to new life, and he invites us as his people to do the same thing, to lay down our lives, our lives that look only at the outward appearance of things, our lives that are divorced from faith in God, and to place those lives on the cross and put them to death, so that we may be raised to new life in Jesus Christ, that we might live faith-filled lives, lives with proper confidence in the living God, lives that are lived out of trust in and thanksgiving for our great deliverer, that we might live lives with God-soaked imaginations. When we approach life this way, it changes everything about uh, the way we go about it. It changes the way that we approach our relationships with other people, It changes the way that we go about our jobs and our callings. It changes how we live as citizens of a nation and of the world. 
And ultimately, it changes the very things that we are living for, even what we understand life to be about. So friends, may we, like David, look to God's faithfulness in the past and his promises for our future so that whatever we face in the present, we may face it with proper confidence. And we might do so putting our faith in him in the present, putting our faith in our mighty and loving and delivering God. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks uh, for your word, which you have given to us once again today. And Lord, we, you know we are weak and sinful and imperfect people, and that our faith so many times is weak, and that we do look at the outward appearance of things and assume that that is the ultimate reality. So God, we pray that you might help us once again to put our faith in you that you might remind us of all of the ways that you are working in this world and ways that we can't see all the time so that we might put our trust in you the same way that David did. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.